Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And welcome to another episode of Conspiranormal. I'm your host, Adam Sane. And I'm your co-host, Luke Reed. Luke, uh, how you been doing? Pretty awesome, man. Just uh, enjoying myself, sitting on the porch all day for the most part. Would you Just sitting on the porch, man? Sitting on the porch, getting into trouble. Yeah, I know. You're, well, you're always getting in some kind of trouble. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about it a little later. Luke and I went to a, uh, a strange landmark down in Georgia. And uh, took some pictures, and uh, we're going to talk about that at the end of the show. But uh, I want to go ahead and bring on our guest. Uh, his name is Micah Hanks, and he is the host of The Grayling Report. Uh, has become one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, we're just going to talk about just like a grab bag of subjects with Micah. He's kind of a man of many subjects. And uh, Micah, if you could kind of tell our audience about yourself, just kind of you know introduce yourself, and we'll go from there. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Conspiranormal. Man, what a hell of a good title for a podcast. I love that. I wish I had thought of that, in fact. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much. Yet that's again, yet, yeah, yet again, my friends over in Nashville are beating me to the punch, but that's okay, um, because I give you the endorsement. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, primarily uh, known these days as a ufologist ever since UFO Magazine brought me on board a few years ago as a columnist. And, of course, the new book that's going to be available in stores everywhere this December is The UFO Singularity. And thus, my destiny seems firmly imprinted in the minds of the masses. But, uh, you know, I started off really probably more interested in, in the work of people like, uh, he's not so well known today, but in, in his day, he was one of the premier cryptozoologists, Peter Byrne. And, uh, of course, uh, his colleague and uh, the late great uh, Ivan Sanderson, who wrote the book uh, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, those kind of books. They always fascinated me, and and I used to, it's funny because you know I came through Nashville a few years on my, uh, a few years ago on my way to Memphis, 
because I was looking for blues music. I'm a, I'm a musician also, and I used to be just so into blues guitar. And I play mostly bluegrass these days, and I've gone through heavy metal phases, just everything. I used to think that to find the blues, you had to go up to Chicago. I've been to Chicago, and I've been to Memphis, and I know for a fact that you can find blues music in the South just as well as in the North. And it's kind of the same thing when it comes to cryptozoology and strange phenomena You know, in general. I started off reading these books by these authors like Peter Byrne and, and Ivan Sanderson, and I kind of thought, if you want to see a Bigfoot, you've got to go to the Pacific Northwest. And come to find out, just a few years after that, uh, you know, I was probably <laughs> in my early teens. Uh, I interviewed my first, uh, you know, investigator or not. He, he wasn't an investigator himself. He was a uh, a witness, I guess. But uh, even at that early age, you might have called me an investigator. Uh, and this fellow, he was a friend of my mother and, and father's. And they're, they're the aliens go landing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there they are, man. Turn your mail off before you start the podcast. You guys can edit that out. I, I give you jurisdiction for that. But... <laughs> This fella uh, had me on his uh, – or over to his house with my mom and dad for a cookout one night, and my mom had always said, you know, your Uncle Bruce, he wasn't really my uncle, but they called him that. He said he said he saw a Bigfoot years and years ago, and I thought, wait, in western North Carolina? No way. But I talked to him, and it was a very – he didn't what? know what to make of it. He said, for all I know, it was some crazy old man, but it looked a lot like a bear, except it was tall, it was upright, and it had these crooked little hands in a man's face, and it was just terrifying. And he didn't know what to make of this, and it's interesting because that was my introduction to the idea that really there are a lot of reports of creatures like Bigfoot throughout the southeast just as well as the Pacific Northwest. And really, if you know what to look for, you can really find a lot of strange stuff in your own backyard. So I've you know been doing this for decades now, and I've been fascinated with it for really my entire life, and I'm, I'm just you know lucky enough to be able to do it primarily for a living these days by writing books and, of course, speaking about these sorts of things as well and you know joining fine folks on their podcasts like we're doing tonight. Well, thank you. Right on. It, it is true that, um, you know, you can find just about any strange stuff. I mean, especially um, I've noticed that, uh, like, West Virginia has both the uh, Flatwoods Monster and the um, the Mothman. So there's plenty oh, yeah. of strange stuff around in the southern United States area. Yeah, and, and that Flatwoods Monster, now that, that's one of the most often overlooked and yet probably one of the, 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 the most singularly strange uh, incidents that that I can ever you know that, that I recall ever reading about and, and, and studying. I've studied it a good bit over the years, and that one there's just about uh, you know no question in my mind that something actually happened there. Now the Mothman, there's a little bit of dirt when it when it comes to Mothman, but we can get into that later if you'd like to. The Flatwoods Monster sure. is something that just I don't hear enough people talking about it. And yeah, if you're not familiar with the Flatwoods Monster, people listening to the podcast, go go check that out. You know, get on Wikipedia at very least and read about that. Could you explain cryptozoology for me, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, crypto, I believe, actually, that prefix uh, stems from the Greek, uh, essentially meaning hidden, and then, of course, the study of animals, zoology. So you're studying hidden animals or, you know, in, in conventional modern speak, uh, animals that are as yet unknown to science. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of credible evidence that there may be relic hominids, or at very least at some point there were relic hominids that still existed in our midst, uh, you know, along the periphery, the fringes of civilization, and even on a continent like North America. Uh, J.W. Burns was an, uh, an agent who lived among the Chehalis natives in British Columbia back in the 1940s, and he was publishing stories in magazines uh, that talked about this race, this lost tribe, if you will, of natives that lived up in the mountains that were covered in hair. They were very primitive people. And, of course, the Chehalis believed not only that these things without question were there, but also that they were somehow related to these beings. 
And later on, these folk tales and these legends kind of, uh, you know, began to pick up a little bit of steam, especially after, uh, you know, the 1950s Bigfoot uh, craze hit the Pacific Northwest. And, of course, there were a lot of self-proclaimed Bigfoot hunters and people that started coming out there. The term cryptozoology, I think, actually stemmed to a time a little before that. And I believe it was Bernard Huevelmans who actually coined that term, and it was later used by the likes of Ivan Sanderson. And, of course, we have, uh, you know, the, the, the great cryptozoologists of today, like Lauren Coleman, who employed that, that term. Uh, in fact, his blog is called Cryptomundo. So you can check out Cryptomundo.com. It's one of the most authoritative blogs about cryptozoology today. And, and that, although, again, Coleman is probably best known as a Bigfoot researcher, uh, cryptozoology is not going to be limited to just the study of creatures like Bigfoot or Sasquatch, which I think a lot of people kind of laugh when you say Bigfoot, you know, or you talk about Sasquatch, because they do equate it with just being mere myth, you know, folk tales, Native American legends, things like that. But there does seem to be some credible evidence for the existence of some sort of a physical being. By the same token, the cryptozoologists often won't get into the aspect that it seems to be a little more esoteric, if you will. Right. There, there are aspects of a lot of Bigfoot reports for these things, and I've spoken to first-hand witnesses on more than one occasion who have said that they've actually seen these things just vanish into thin air. What do we make of reports like this? Uh, and, and I think that most often they're just discounted entirely by the crypto uh, culture, if you will. And I think that the reason for that is is that people, no matter how open-minded they try to be, will nonetheless kind of end up building a little fence around their own ideology and their own their own philosophy of life and reality and what should constitute reality, whether or not the observed phenomenon does actually constitute that reality. And right. what, what we see is that people will go out there, and when they come across reports of Bigfoot wearing blue jeans or Bigfoot... <laughs> Which, believe it or not, there are a lot of credible reports of Sasquatches that appear to be wearing human clothing. It doesn't sound out, out of the range of the, the possible, you know, to me at all, that if there were relic hominids in our midst, that these things might try and borrow uh, human clothing and apparel and things like that. You know, and if they've seen people wearing these things, they might, tr <laughs> they might try it also. I mean, certainly chimpanzees and things like that will do that. Sure. But, um, but when you hear these kind of reports, they just sound so absurd that often they're just discounted, and I see people say that they, you know, that they are open-minded enough to believe in Bigfoot, and yet they are closed-minded enough to rule out the other strange phenomena that seems to be associated with these things. So that's kind of the problem with cryptozoology. But nonetheless, I think that people—it's at least a step in the right direction that they're acknowledging that there may be animals that science has not yet recognized. I wish that they'd open their minds a little further and try and understand what else may be underlying this phenomena. I mean, I've heard that uh, Bigfoot associated with UFOs. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard of violent haunting episodes where they seem to see creatures that are kind of the same way. Um, so I think there's there may be a kind of a spiritual aspect to it, and that goes into thinking like uh, what uh, you know uh, John Keel and the Mothman prophecies and all those uh, those those creatures that uh, kind of a transdimensional idea oh yes yeah or i think as keel actually said uh, a few times in his life ultra dimensional There's, ultra dimensional yeah yeah and all these different expressions interdimensional seems to be the popular one these days transdimensional interdimensional ultra dimensional you know quasi-dimensional whatever you want to call them but it's all primarily the same thing something that may stem from an aspect of our reality that is imperceptible to humans at least according to the known senses now some people you know think that there are ways that you might indeed uh, you know, elicit an altered state by which you may be able to 
for instance, uh, come into contact with some sort of a dimensional intelligence, some sapient or sentient intelligence from another realm. I talk about that a good bit in my book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, and specifically how psychedelic molecules, you know, the likes of uh, dimethyltryptamine or, you know, yes. DMT, and even things like LSD and psilocybin, you know, the shrooms that grow on cow patties and, <laughs> and fields and stuff like that, you know, all these substances are capable of eliciting altered states of consciousness. And what we know is that throughout history, in these altered states of consciousness, not everyone does this, but there are many people who have claimed to have had interactions with, you know, what, for lack of a better term, could be deemed intelligences of some sort. There is definitely a spiritual angle to our existence. We don't know exactly what that is and whether it stems from the mind or from external circumstances and sources, but that seems also to be the case with certain cryptid phenomena that these Bigfoot reports and things often do have a very spiritual uh component to them and again that's just very often overlooked you know, with some, something uh, Micah that we have talked about a lot on this show um, I've quite unexpectedly has been um, about DMT and um, those type of uh, drugs and the altered state that they produce and I know something that you had posted on Facebook about sleep, sleep paralysis and that's also something that we spoke about on our last show hmm. as well um, do you have any insight on, you know, sleep paralysis and kind of its relationship to maybe like alien abductions and those, yeah. those type of phenomena? I certainly do. In fact, I've always been fascinated with sleep paralysis, and there's one book that deals with that uh, subject, uh, uh, and I would say pretty thoroughly, although from a more paranormal perspective, and that is the the book that was written uh, by my good friend Louis Proud of Australia, which is called Dark Intrusions. And, um, you know, that book, again, it, it, the title says it all. It's a paranormal investigation uh, into sleep paralysis. But um, I think that clearly, and, and being someone who myself has uh, experienced sleep paralysis a few times in my life, uh, the most vivid encounter, I think, would had been, I'd been a, and, and it's always, by the way, I do want to say this, sleep paralysis for me when it occurs uh, typically is in conjunction with uh, if I'm staying someplace or sleeping on a bed or a couch that I'm not used to sleeping. Sure, when you're uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, there seem to be external factors that influence that um, most recently, it actually probably uh, the most recent occurrence was about a week and a half ago, actually, um, and uh, I had gotten in very late the night before because being a, a working musician, in addition to a, a writer and journalist, I, uh, I came in very late from a gig uh, in a, uh, the next state. I was driving back from South Carolina, and so I got in very, very late. Uh, and in addition to that, we've had this kind of back-and-forth weather here in western North Carolina, and right now it feels more like early spring outside than it does um, uh, summertime. And here we are in June, and so my allergies were acting up too. And so here's my nose stopped up, and it was the middle of the night, and I was getting in. And, and I woke up the next morning at about 6 o'clock, literally with just you know a stopped-up nose and a headache, and I just felt like pure you know dog crap. And so I, I go into the, 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 the bathroom, and I actually took a couple – of these little uh, cold and sinus decongestant gel caps. And and when I woke up again at 8 o'clock, sure enough, I couldn't move, and I was just, you know, it wasn't one of the most vivid uh, experiences of sleep paralysis, but it was, you know, fairly classic, uh, you know, typical experience. You know, I, I uh, maybe was experiencing some mild little auditory, what you'd call hallucinations, which, you know, again, this is the dreaming mind still at work here. But sure. Primarily, I could, you know, kind of open my eyes but couldn't move my body. And every time it's ever happened to me, every single time I've been well aware of what was happening. And I always – there was a trick I read about in Fate magazine years ago before I ever actually had the experience myself. And I would start by moving 
Well, the, the person in this story would start by moving one finger, and then he'd move his entire hand, then his forearm, and by the time he could move his arm, he'd snap out of it. I, that, that trick has always done it for me, and I always snap right out of sleep paralysis by doing that. But I'll say that, again, I think that you know, taking the decongestants and the combination of that and a lack of sleep you know, and maybe maybe a rogue chocolate stout that I'd had about a half of the night before. <laughs> that combination seemed to, uh, you know, elicit uh, enough restlessness that, that uh, you know, that, that caused that experience. And in the past, it's happened when I fell asleep on a couch or when I was house-sitting for someone, you know, and I've never, ever had what I would call anything otherworldly save the experience where I'd been house-sitting for someone. I was house-sitting for my good friends Tim and Laura Gardner, and uh, I uh, had, for the, for some reason, I'd wanted to sleep on the couch the entire time I'd been house sitting for them. And uh, in this one instance, it was a little different. I decided to go over to uh, to the master bedroom and I and I lie down on the bed. And of course, I, it, I just wasn't familiar. And I, I think I was wearing like you know the the jeans and the shirt I'd worn all day, so I wasn't really comfortable. And I wake up at one point, unable to move. And I and this is again the only time I've ever really had anything strange happen. I hear footsteps come down the hall. Um, something enters the room, but it's dark and I can't see, and I hear heavy breathing standing next to the bed. And while this this breathing, which I take to be a male entity of some sort, is standing next to the bed, I also feel a second entity, which is a female, and she climbs up and sits down on my knees. You know, and and you hear these express experiences that people describe where a being is sitting on your chest or riding your chest, or if you're lying on your your front, and then it's sitting on your back. A devil, yeah, right? The old the old hag syndrome. Exactly, and it's interesting that. So many cultures describe the same circumstance. And despite the fact that it's known that there are chemical reasons underlying the experience, and over the years there have been people who've gone to the doctor and had you know vivid hallucinations and dreams in that semi-wake state, and they've been prescribed antipsychotic medications for having nothing more than sleep paralysis occur. I think it would be easy if you don't understand and if you're not familiar with the literature would be very easy to think that something terrifying and paranormal were happening in an instance like mine where I was lying there unable to move. There's heavy breathing coming from some sort of a demonic-sounding thing standing next to me. Meanwhile, there's a little fairy nymph thing sitting on my kneecaps, you know. Yeah, that, that's a real pleasant experience. Exactly. It's, it, actually, it's not, but, you know. <laughs> what do you right. mean, pleasant? What are you trying to say? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Wait, there, there's my, uh, there's my uh, alter ego, my, my twin there, but anyway. <laughs> But in all truth, yeah, it is. it can be unsettling. Now, I want to be clear on one thing, though, guys. Does that mean that other people's experiences are not paranormal in nature? I wouldn't say that because I have heard many stories that people have related that seem to be very, very supernatural. I don't think mine are. And a reason, the reason I can discount the, uh, the one I just described to you is because I'm well aware of the literature. And I'm not convinced that what I experienced in that circumstance wasn't my own mind playing out the experiences of others that I was already well familiar with. And when right. I when I wake up like that, I always know, oh, sleep paralysis again, time to snap out of this, you know, and, and I always do. So who knows what really is underlying that, but could that be a form of altered state of consciousness that certain people actually uh, experience supernatural phenomena during? Yeah, I think so, certainly. I think there's definitely a link between uh, the sleep paralysis phenomena and what people are seeing in um – you know the the what ayahuasca phenomenon and those kind of things. Oh yes, and uh, you know, uh, and to what's going on right now with all this weird stuff in the news. Well, the zombies, yeah. Uh, the, this last week, uh, <laughs> people getting high on bath salts apparently and eating people's faces, oh. and uh, one that you had posted up about a woman trying to eat a baby. <laughs> Wasn't that terrible? Yeah, it's just awful. 
I mean, doesn't I mean, it just, what's going on? You know, you know, so I've heard people, people are just say, losing it. <laughs> well, you know, that's as good a, a theory as, yeah. as as any, I would argue. But uh, you know, my my friend and uh, and I've been proud to call him a mentor over the years, Brad Steiger, wrote out um, uh, to his uh, email list earlier today. Uh, talking about how he had uh, been interviewed by Lee Spiegel for the Huffington Post regarding what you know people are calling the zombie apocalypse, which is totally sensational. Right. And although I don't endorse this theory, uh, Brad did point out something very interesting that I think uh, is worth mentioning, uh, which was that rather than being zombies, uh, these uh, attacks where people are doing these horrific and violent things, uh, Steiger likens them to being uh, what he calls Wendigo psychosis. And he talks about that in his book, Real Zombies, The Living Dead and Creatures of the Apocalypse. One of the only people who's a serious paranormal researcher that I know of who's in recent times written a fairly serious book also dealing with uh, zombies and zombie phenomena and th- these sorts of things. Uh, Chris O'Brien is another researcher who's also dealt with this. And, of course, Chris now co-hosts the Paracast with Gene Steinberg. But but Chris o, uh, O'Brien, in his book Stalking the Tricksters, he talked about uh, some of the more horrific instances where, you know, people just seem to be fine one day and the next day they just lose their mind, uh, go on a rampage, decapitate someone, and then try and drink their blood. And um, there are Native American legends that deal with the sudden onset of what appears to be psychosis like this and murderous behavior. Uh, and they do uh, uh, insinuate uh, that uh, that this is caused by the spirit of a, of a wendigo or something to that effect. Now, again, I don't necessarily endorse that, but, you know, it's interesting that there is that cultural motif. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who probably have seen all this going on and think, hell, yes, there is something going on. And maybe there are spiritual, you know, underlying uh, reasons behind this. I think it's quite clear that, you know, bath salts and a lot of um, – a lot of substances that are readily accessible, easily obtained, uh, and and prolifically dangerous to use. Nonetheless, they, of course, also elicit some sort of a hallucinatory state, and people are desperate enough to try these things these days. I think that that's a sign of the times that shows how often and how desperate people really are getting to the yeah. point they're, that they're incorporating things like bath salts into their routine and then going out and doing very murderous and, and sickening things. I had a couple of friends do bath salts a couple of days ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> tell 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 them tell them that I said don't do that. Yeah, I was I was kind of leery myself. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to be around you guys right now. <laughs> Luke was concerned his face was going to be eaten off. Yeah, I wouldn't want your face to be eaten off. Now, did you do the the bath salts? No, absolutely not. I don't, I don't want you to do the bath salts. I hope you never do the bath salts. Don't ever do those things. Don't ever do it. Bad for you. Bilderberg. Are you are you making fun of uh, Alex Jones? I think we are. Yeah, we do be. we do a little thing here, Micah, called the uh, Alex Jones Scream Off. Oh boy! <laughs> that Luke and I love to do, and uh, we hear you, you do an awesome Alex Jones impression. I've been known to uh, to uh, whip that out every now and then. Um, I might could do a little something for you if you want. Especially right now, as we have Bilderberg and the bullhorning. <laughs> With the bullhorning, what's this now? <laughs> he, he was bullhorning uh, uh, Bilderberg this last week. The Bilderberg meeting. Oh, the meeting. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You show your distaste for this, 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 this psychosis, this, this craziness that these people are get, get involved with out there. They, they're out there. They're, they're taking your money and they're and they're they're globalist elitists and they they do their thing and they think they can do what what they want and to, to hell with you and hell with children and you don't give whiskey to a god. You don't give whiskey to a god. <laughs> you know, it's, you're talking to a god right. No. That's not the way you talk to a god, you know? you know. Alex is so funny. And I'll tell you this. There are <laughs> there are times where the man is is very lucid and 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 he makes some good points. 
You know? Absolutely. He, he really, really does. But by the same token, uh, and I think that's part of his whole persona and his character, you know, there, there are two Alexes you'll get. There's, this is Alex Jones for Survival Seed Bank, you know, or... Or something like that, and then and then there's angry Alex, where he literally is. I mean, that is not. I'm not making this up. I mean, you can get online and you can see this stuff all day, sitting there in clown makeup. You little bastards are laughing at me right now. <laughs> I mean, how do you? I can't even go to Houston without them going after my genitals. That's a that's a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> I mean, seriously, is there an Alex Jones soundboard that has you don't give whiskey to a god? They're going after my genital uh, genitals. <laughs> there's another great one that I heard. One day, God, what was it? What was it? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> you know, and the only person who might have more hilarious sound bites that you could get, you know, because again, I have uh, you know respect for Alex Jones. I mean, he's funny and he is almost a caricature. Hello, of him, of himself, but but at least he makes. Oh, have you got me? Hello. Yeah, I got you. Hello, hello. Yeah, he's oh, a caricature caricature of of himself. He, he certainly can be a caricature of himself, but at least I respect Alex Jones because even if he is inflating that personality for purposes of entertainment, and that's obviously what he does, he is, I think, still also a sincere person. Then, you know, there are some people out there that are just absolute nuts. And uh, a good example, Fred Phelps, okay, uh, who is the uh, – what's the church out there? Is it is it Westboro Baptist Church out there? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, get out there. You know, God hates this and God hates that. You uh-huh. Know? I've found so many. Somebody needs to make a soundboard of that guy. They're going to eat your babies. I mean, just it's 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 hilarious. Some of this stuff. So almost as good as some of the Alex Jones quotes. Well, you guys in North Carolina have had a couple of uh, preachers uh, say some pretty silly things out there. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> we certainly have. And uh, and actually, the West uh, the Westboro Baptist Church showed up picketing right here in Nashville, North Carolina, a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I think they uh, were here in Nashville too. There at one point. You'll find them more places than you will anonymous these days. But uh, but more yeah. places than the TSA. That's right. Yeah, the TSA's everywhere. You you'll never escape the TSA. That's why. That's why Governor Ventura stopped flying. You know, Governor Ventura he travels by car everywhere he goes now. <laughs> actually, again though, Jesse Ventura's somebody. You know, actually, I, I got a phone call from his uh, producers the other day, and they're they're supposed to have me on conspiracy theory very soon. And I'm oh, look- well. I'm looking forward to meeting Jesse Ventura again. A lot of people think he's crazy, but you know he's a man who stands for his values, and also he, obviously he's a he's a character again, and the, and that's sellable. But you know he's a person who I mean, <laughs> when he said he's not going to put up with the TSA anymore, I'm not going to fly it. Boy, he didn't, and I respect that. You know, I think he's uh, he he might be right. a little fringy for a lot of people, like Alex Jones is. But you know, I'd, I'd still call him a great American, shake his hand, and want to buy him a beer. And actually, when we get when I when I meet him, I hope to do that. Actually, I don't know if he drinks, but we'll find out. <laughs> I'd say about ninety-five percent of what Jesse Ventura says makes makes real sense. You know, I mean, he is someone who, again, let's look at this. You know, Alex Jones has been called a sensationalist, and 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 that's true. That's true. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it bad though, because what people forget about radio, no matter whether it's 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 Ed Schultz or Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh or Alex Jones or George Norrie for that matter, it's entertainment. Okay, and that's what drives the ratings. And every now and then you'll glean some truth from what these people are saying. Uh, but the thing is, is that it's entertainment first and foremost. Art Bell, I guarantee you, over the years, more than once, uh, was probably well aware of the fact that the callers that were calling in and telling some of these stories uh, were completely bunked. Mel's whole JC, right. the character, you know, there was, some of those stories were so ridiculous 
there couldn't have been any truth to that. And, you know, I bet you Art was in on a lot of it, too. But the thing is, is that, again, while he had the majority of the time real guests who were real, uh, you know, authorities on certain subjects and things, that kind of a program, again, is entertainment. And you can glean truth from it. But, you know, I think that it's up to the individual, the listener, to glean, uh, you know, what is the truth and to take what they will from the story and then, you know, <laughs> set aside that which is obviously bunk. Um, they're not going to tell you, they're not going to come right out and tell you what you should and shouldn't believe, you know, and that's why, you know, it, it should be left up to the mind of the individual. The bad news is, is that a lot of people actually just take all this stuff at face value. They'll read the Weekly World News and they'll believe everything that they see. Sasquatch captured for the first time again. Bat Boy returns. Bat Boy returns and bites woman's finger off. You know, that's almost as horrific as what's really going on down there in Miami or out there in California or wherever else these quote-unquote zombie attacks are. But are they really zombies? The media sensationalizes everything. And, and the thing oh, is, sure. and, and, and in truth, you know, what you'll see on Fox News or MSNBC isn't that much different from what you're going to hear coming out of the mouths of guys like Alex Jones. You know, it's all, there's a bit of spin on it, and that's what, because it's all to an extent entertainment. It's driven by ratings, and I'm sorry, you know, it's very hard to find information these days that isn't, uh, you know, filtered through some sort of an ideological spin factor like that these days. But, you know, hey, that such is life. Absolutely. And I, and I would say, too, like on Coast to Coast, I mean, some of the best guests are probably the ones that are um, are just flat out crazy. <laughs> well, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> They're the Absolutely. ones that get the most attention. You know, George Norrie, uh, who, who in every experience I've had with George is a great guy. He's going to be, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I was the one, that, the very one that arranged to have George uh, at this conference I'm putting on uh, this October up in Minneapolis, the Paradigm Symposium. And, uh, and, and boy, I tell you, uh, things are going really well with that. I should interject briefly because uh, we we actually had to contact the hotel there, the DoubleTree, in Minneapolis, and let them know that we needed another block of hotel rooms. We've already sold out of the entire allotted block of hotel rooms that they gave us. Uh, you know when we negotiated the contract, and and it's we're still four months out. So, I mean, tickets are selling big time for this thing. And if folks don't know what I'm talking about, they can just check out ParadigmSymposium.com. That's the event that my friend Scotty Robertson and I are putting on up in Minneapolis. But we've got Eric Von Daniken, we've got Giorgio Sukalos, William J. Burns, uh, and uh, Philip Coppins, all these characters from Ancient Aliens, and people who a lot of whom are, are good friends of mine. Um, and in fact, I've been told Von Daniken's going to be on the Grayling Report next week. This is really big. Uh, he he typically only does coast to coast, and uh, I think uh, Scotty Roberts and I are going to get about fifteen minutes with Eric. So that's oh, wow. Yeah, so that's yeah. he hasn't even been in the United States in ten years. But that's pretty major. It's pretty major. I'm, I'm very excited about talking to uh, Von Daniken. But the reason I bring that up is because George Norrie's also going to be a speaker at Paradigm Symposium, and you know I I actually uh, arranged for that myself, and I've been going back and forth with Tom Danheiser and working out the contracts and the arrangements and scheduling for that. And you know I wouldn't have someone like George Norrie at a Paradigm Symposium if I didn't know what kind of a person he is. And every dealing I've ever had with George has been just absolutely, not only just incredibly professional, but also the, the folks at Premier Network are some of the genuine, the most genuine, nicest people, humble people. George Norrie is just a, he's a gem of a guy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good, uh, uh, it's a really good operation that they have going on there. But that said, um, one of the biggest criticisms leveled against George Norrie over the years has been that he is so nice that he is often a little too accepting of the crazies that come on his program. I, I, th and I think he's fair. I think he's fair. I think he just lets people talk, and I think that's good. He is fair. And I'll tell you, I've also heard a few times where people have called in and said really stupid stuff, and I've heard George say, now I'm sorry. I, I, no, yeah. I believe that. I'm sorry. All right, west of the Rockies, you're on coast to coast again. <laughs> you know, and, and he will. If, if someone's just completely out of left field, 
yeah, George will cut him down, you know. Um, but but again, I think if anything, George probably puts less of 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 his own attitude and vitriol out there than probably anybody in media. He's probably one of the fairest voices in uh, talk radio right now. And 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 I've always said. Too one of his voices in talk radio. I mean, his actual delivery, his speaking voice is probably one of the best uh, male voices I think in radio. So anyway, but I've, I've, you know, I've made him feel good enough. Sorry, George, I got to stop talking about you now. <laughs> well, since we're on the subject uh, of of, um, of ancient aliens, yeah. Um, now, I am kind of of the opinion that the ancient aliens is something else uh, entirely, um, but you. You look at the ancient aliens, uh, those theories, and you say, well, it could not necessarily be aliens. Did you think there might have been other – it could have been something else, but now, you're open to those to that idea. You're, now, if I understand the way you're phrasing the, qu- the question correctly, you're, you're asking whether I think that aliens are really underlying uh, hum- humans' origins and, and, in other words, what people yes. call – Okay, yeah. Um, that is a correct statement. I – I question whether extraterrestrial life uh, is is undoubtedly behind the origin of the human species. See, it's funny. There's often kind of a of a of a Hegelian dialectic, or maybe you'd say kind of a uh, you know kind of a, a dichotomy. Uh, for some reason, everything gets polarized, and you either have to be this or you are that. Uh, and if you're in politics, people criticize you. If you're a fence rider, or by calling you a fence rider, you either got to be right or you've got to be left. There is no in between. It's black or white. There is no gray. I don't know why people think that you have to be either this or that. You know, right? That's really, really bland. Can, are there no more choices than that? Really, it's really just chocolate or vanilla. What if I want strawberry? Okay. What I'm getting at here is that when it comes to ancient alien theorists. Ancient alien theorists believe, you know, <laughs> it's it's like you either believe in God and you believe in a Judeo-Christian background and and and, and a and a biblical uh, origin for humanity, as stated in the Bible, which was written by God, obviously, <laughs> or you believe that aliens from Zeta to Reticuli came to planet Earth and they seeded humankind, or they took monkeys and they genetically genetically manipulated them and did all kinds of things and. And, and subjected them to all kinds of tests and stuff and then created humans like that. And that's where we came from. It seems that there's no in-between. <laughs> and I don't understand, again, why there have to be these, 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 this, this game among, amidst the science of ultimates. It's either this or it's that. And on Ancient Aliens, it seems so funny because, while I don't think that all the people who appear on those programs are all atheists or that they're anti-religion, um, and I'm certainly not, uh, but, you know, I, I think that those people tend to, and I know Giorgio Sukalos, for one, often does this. He'll talk about, he'll, he'll almost speak about a God and a religious uh, uh, interpretation of the origins of mankind uh, in, in a kind of, maybe not derogatory way, but he kind of plays that idea down. But then he's so accepting of aliens to the point that it has become a meme. I don't know, therefore, aliens. Right. You know, to me... What evidence do we really have, first of all, that extraterrestrials have ever visited Earth? People look at UFOs and they say, well, these things aren't ours. Do you know that for certain? You don't. They don't seem to be ours, and therefore Occam's razor applies. The simplest explanation given the circumstances and the minutia of evidence that we've been given is what people gravitate toward, and therefore they say well, these things don't look like anything of ours that we know about, and therefore they're more likely to be aliens. It really is 
in essence, I don't know, therefore aliens. And that's absolutely bad science. By the same token, what evidence do we have of a god? Now, philosophers have debated this one for centuries. And I think that there would probably be a lot of people out there, especially of the fundamentalist religious persuasion, who would say that there is evidence for God. But I'll tell you this. I think that, again, that that is primarily a faith-based argument. There is clearly something. And I'm a spiritual person, too. And in fact, I was raised Christian. So I'm not trying to attack either uh, perspective. But what I am saying is that both end up, at the end of the day, primarily being a faith-based argument, and people will take whatever evidence that they want to, and they will justify their presupposition. They don't actually find evidence for something and then see where the evidence points. They prop up a pre-existing argument with evidence that is convenient to their worldview, whether that be the worldview that there is a God or that aliens created humankind. It may have been both. It may have been neither. But I don't have those answers, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think that I you know, know that aliens visited us in ancient times. Um, I'm not going to tell you that I don't think aliens have visited Earth now. They may have, but again, I don't think that scientifically we have evidence of that. And uh, and, and it's funny because I spoke to a, a, a astronomer years and years ago, and I asked him what he thought about UFOs and whether aliens might have visited Earth. And he told me very very concisely that, no, 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 I don't think aliens have visited Earth. And if they ever have, it clearly, as a matter of fact, I think it's likely that they probably did in ancient times, but I don't think that there's evidence that they've done it today. How scientific, <laughs> how scientific yeah. that you can say that despite the fact that there is at least some – now, here's the thing. Again, evidence and proof are different things. Do UFOs constitute potential evidence for the existence of extraterrestrials that do visit Earth? Yes. Are they proof of that extraterrestrial visitation? Absolutely not. And despite the fact that there is some evidence that, that again, according to some people, some theorists, uh, seems to be indicative of extraterrestrial visitation – Despite that being here today, how is it that a man of science can say that there's no evidence that I've seen today for that, but that in ancient times, yeah, probably we did get visited? Do you have a time machine? Hello? <laughs> I don't know. You know people, some, there are smart people that say some really stupid things, and that's what, really what it all comes down to. And so I'm, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an ancient alien theorist, uh, theorist here, but I'm also a person who is and proudly so, fairly agnostic, I think, and I'm not going to commit to belief, and I'm not going to put a faith-based argument out there and then try and substantiate that and claim that I'm giving empirical data and evidence to back up that claim, knowing full well that I'm really just basing everything on a presupposition. I see both sides doing that, and no, I, I don't do that. I try not to, at least. Ancient alien theorists believe. According to ancient <laughs> alien theorists, you know, well, sure, but the thing is, is that that... Although, and, and I don't, you got to keep in mind, these are, are a lot of my friends in this field. Uh, there are people like sure. Philip Coppins and, and Bill Burns who are absolutely gold. I'm not making fun of those guys. And I'm not making fun of Giorgio Sukulos, Eric Von Daniken. No, 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 no. I wouldn't be having these people at Paradigm Symposium if I didn't think that there was some merit to aspects of. I don't agree with everything that they say, but if I didn't think that there was merit to that argument and to aspects of that, and philosophically, that it's justified that these questions should be asked. We wouldn't even be doing Paradigm Symposium. What I say, though, is that, again, when we talk about the way that the media spins things, you get a five-second soundbite of Giorgio or of Eric Von Daniken or of Philip Coppins. By the way, one of the most brilliant people that you'll ever speak to, Philip Coppins. You know, you get a five-second soundbite of these brilliant people talking, and then it's all laced together into this, this, this television program, you know, that's obviously clearly trying to direct you toward a, a, you know, a you know, certain concept or another, 
And yes, and it's all strung together. The glue that binds it is these little sound bites. But according to ancient alien theorists, you know, I don't fault these researchers, but I certainly don't think that they're really getting their message out. They're getting a five-second watered-down rendition of it put into the context of a program that's obviously trying to drive a certain perspective or agenda. And that's, yeah, yeah Ancient Aliens does do that a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, it's edited to entertain. Much so. And, and it's, 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 it's there to entertain, pretty much. I mean, I'm entertained by it, even though I probably don't buy half of it. Oh, it's a great show. You know. It's a great show, but folks, it's entertainment. Right. You know, the Grayling Report, although I do try to actually be more factual with the information we present on the Grayling Report, you know, okay, you know what, guys? You hear the UFO people always asking for their disclosure. They want disclosure. I would say disclosure of what, but nonetheless, if that's what they want, we're going to get full disclosure here. You ready for this? All right. When you listen to my program, every time I open the show, from hundreds of miles beneath terra firma in the depths of the hollow earth, you really think that I'm hundreds of miles underground? Really? But I've had people ask, are you really underground when you do the show? Oh, how are the Hadels, by the way? They're doing great, by the way. They're 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 so cute. <laughs> love them, <laughs> love them, love them. But but the thing is, is that there is certainly an entertainment factor, however real or not Hadels may be, and I'll leave that up to the to the judgment of my wise listenership. Whatever the case may be, there's always going to be an entertainment angle, no matter how it's presented. If you're going to be getting it through the media, you know, and and even independent media still has its own spin that goes into it. So, but it's entertainment. Take it for what it is and enjoy it. Right. And I think, too, you know, we're, we're on this subject. I think anything um, is sifted through your paradigm and how you view the world. And also people seem to have a certain agenda that they try to um, put forth as well. So you have to be when you're looking at things, you got to be really careful of, OK, what's the agenda they're trying to put forth? What's in a lot? And some of it uh, kind of goes back to politics in many ways. Oh, it certainly does. Politics is the science of decision making. And, and, and the thing is, is I'm so disenchanted with politics. But at various times, uh, I'll just tell you this. Four years ago, I was so, so, um, you know, just so politically minded and, and involved uh, you know, I was traveling around the campaign stops that the candidates were making on both sides, you know, although I was, uh, you know, at, at that point, I, I will say that I was a little more right of center. Uh, and and I think I liked, uh, you know, a lot of people cringe when, when, when I say this, but, you know, I, I liked Ron Paul. Now, did I think that Ron Paul was the best candidate for presidency? No. Do I think that Ron Paul is really suited for the Oval Office? Probably not. Um but but again, does the fundamental philosophy resonate with more people today? Uh, I I do think so. I certainly do think so. Um, and I've met Ron Paul, uh, albeit briefly. I have met him. I've met Dennis Kucinich uh, and and a few other people who who've been involved in politics over the years, congressmen, senators, and congresswomen and the like. And and you know, I, I used to be fairly involved in politics until I uh, and not to sound like you know Alex Jones or someone like that. Not that that would be a bad thing. But in truth, boy, funny. Funny that I'd say not to sound like Alex Jones, huh? Write that one down. But anyway, the the point is, is that I think that when you when you do study uh, the unconventional approaches to American history and to world history, and you start, it, it, I think that everyone would do well to try and understand uh, what they don't tell you on on the mainstream news. You know, like go read a book like uh, Secrets of the Federal Reserve. Uh, that that was a book that was written back in the nineteen fifties by a 
a not very well-known political dissident by the name of uh, Eustace Mullins. He used to be on the FBI's watch list, and right before he died, he was a little crippled old man sitting in a wheelchair, and I met Eustace and spent an evening talking to him. And uh, this guy had been, like, literally on uh, on J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, hit list because it was suspected that Mullins had a gun and that he might have been building a bomb. This is back in the 1950s. Uh, Mullins, when he was about 22 years old, was working at the Library of Congress, and he and a bunch of friends said there's this crazy old poet up there at, at uh, St. Elizabeth's uh, Sanatorium, I guess. It was a you know, mental hospital there in Washington, and they said, we should go up here and see this crazy old poet. And so Mullins and his buddies go up there, and the poet was Ezra Pound, one of the very finest poets uh, and also probably one of the finest uh, intellectual minds of the last century. Uh, and he was being held as a political prisoner because during World War II he'd gone on Italian uh, radio and he had basically spoken out against the United States and their and their uh, decision to enter the Second World War. And uh, yeah, he you, was considered a traitor. He was, yeah. You don't do that during wartime. Same thing happened to William Dudley Pelly when he said essentially that we had invited the uh, the attacks uh, uh, on uh, Pearl Harbor, and and both of those guys. Well, now Pelly did jail time. Uh, um, Ezra Pound, on the other hand, was incarcerated at this mental hospital and everything. But when Mullins met him, he said this man seemed entirely lucid. And he thought he was being held as a political prisoner just to keep him shut up. And Pound told Mullins, he, he handed him a, like a $10 bill and said, I want you, young man, to go back to the to the uh, the Library of Congress and utilizing the, the, the books there that you have access to. Tell me and find out everything about that that you can. And he says, what, a, a $10 bill? He says, no, 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 read at the top, Federal Reserve Note. And a lot of people don't know that, indeed, yes, there are what we might call cabals that uh, that oversee banking and, and, and various different things that go on in our midst. You know, whether we're talking about the Bilderbergs or Bohemian Grove, Skull and Bones, you know, these different secret societies. A lot of people actually think this stuff's just fiction. No, there really are groups, These the Bilderbergs. You know, there really is Bohemian Grove. There really are secret societies like Skull and Bones, you know, and, and different... You have to say that in your Alex Jones voice, by the there way. There really are secret societies out there. You can laugh, you can make fun of me all you want to, but they're really out there. The Bilderbergers, the Freemasons, the Skull and Bones, oh! the Illuminati, the globalist elitists that are going to... They're trying to take your babies and drink your blood. <laughs> blood pyramids. That's right. Blood pyramids with big old eyes on top. They look like the eye of Saruman. <laughs> I mean, you know... <laughs> In in truth, but 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 in truth, <laughs> those those things are real. And again, I'll, I'm not going to bark it and scream it at you, you know, unless I'm being silly about it. But but in sure. truth, but those organizations really do exist. And and that's the thing that I think a lot of people are just so far removed. They think that's crazy talk. They really do exist. What part of they really do exist do you not understand? You can look this stuff up, and you know, and <laughs> they've always been. They haven't always been there, but. At least for the better part of the last century, you know, ever since the institution of the Federal Reserve, you know, uh, which I guess was the Federal Reserve Act during Woodrow Wilson's presidency, I suppose. Yes. I but anyway, yes. so, and the point, the reason I bring all that up is that again, a lot of people don't ever look at it like that, and the reason they don't is because that kind of information that we're talking about there doesn't show up on their Fox News or their MSNBC or their CNN. And the day, this is one I love. <laughs> My buddies in talk radio here in Asheville. The day that Obama released his birth certificate, oh, wow, everybody was all over that, and everybody was talking about that. Now, behind the scenes, even though there were a couple of news, mainstream news sources that were touching on this, it's funny because nobody in talk radio was, <laughs> here everybody's jumping up and down about Obama's birth certificate. 
which, by the way, wasn't actually, if I understand correctly, the long-form birth certificate. And meanwhile, the same day, the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke and the guys down at the Fed, held their very first press conference ever. Who did you see talking about that? Nobody. (laughs) Nobody. You know, and so there is this smoke and mirrors aspect. And when you don't hear about it on the mainstream news, people, most people don't know. You know, it's not that they're stupid, but they don't know where to look. And if they knew where to look, they might know these things. And so that's why... And that's why I think that alternative news is important, and alternative media like this, you know, very po- podcasts like Conspira Normal are important because this is where sometimes that non-conventional news does get filtered down to, and otherwise people probably wouldn't even know about these kind of things. Well, let me ask you, um, as we mentioned these kind of things, um, you know, you, you mentioned about Pearl Harbor. Uh, where do you stand on 9-11, oh. about September 11th? Yeah, you know oh. the whole birther thing to me is just so confusing. I, it just makes my head spin. Well, here's the bottom line about the birther thing, and we'll be very brief about that. Um, in all truth, I, I think that uh, that uh, the evidence shows that uh, our president Barack Obama was born in Kenya, but that uh, before he ran for president, also the Congress uh, did deem him, uh, a, a, you know, electable. He was he was qualified to run for office, and that should be the end of the story. But even some of his top, uh, you know, aides who were, were were assisting during his campaign knew that he had not been born in the United States per se. Uh, Harvard Law School had actually even in, uh, issued a statement in a biography about him several years ago that recently just came to light in the media talking about the Kenyan-born you know, president of Harvard Law School, Barack Obama. But I think that, again, the point is is that, and, and although I think a lot of people have a, a practical uh, issue in print or a, pr- a, pr- a principle-based issue, you know, it's not the point, it's the principle of the thing, they have an issue with it in those terms, I think that the bigger picture right now is that we're already four years into his presidency. There's another election coming up. There's not a whole lot that we can do. We can't reverse the clock. Let's move on as opposed to focusing on what it now, you know, agree or disagree is fairly, to, you know, pretty much to me a non-issue. Um, but the thing is, is, I think that the information is pretty clear and it's out there. And, yeah, I think that, indeed, our president really was born in Kenya. But, you know, again, that it, it's kind of a non-issue. Now, when it comes to 9-11, that's a big controversy. Um when it initially happened, I think we all thought one thing, that there were terrorists and that we have been attacked and we all united together. And that lasted for a few years. And then there was this war on terror that even William F. Buckley, before he died, you know, the founder of National Review, one of the, the foremost uh, uh, experts uh, and, and, and voices, uh, strongest voices of conservatism of the last century here, William F. Buckley decried our entry under the president of George, uh, presidency of George W. Bush into Afghanistan. Uh, and this quote-unquote war on terror. You know, how do you wage a war against an enemy that you don't see? We haven't declared war, you know. We've we've gone in, and this, of course, ever since World War II is how most wars have been waged. There haven't been efficient, official congressional declarations of war. Um, and so I think it's natural that a lot of people have, have, have questioned that. You know, are we really just parking ourselves in a part of the world where we have uh, economic interests, i.e. oil and things like that? Um, and 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 if if the end game was just to be able to get in there and park and and you know do what amounted to a form of colonialism, uh, then what was the what was the real circumstance behind nine eleven? Was that a scapegoat? In other words, did this terrible attack occur, and then we use that as an excuse to go in there, or and then this is where the consp- conspiracy angle comes in. Some people say was the t- the entire attack orchestrated which is something that Alex Jones and others have said over the years. Uh, and, and actually, by the way, even though he's uh, kind of 
repudiated this uh, in more recent times. President Barack Obama also at one time advocated 9-11 transparency. Uh, which well, I've never heard that. Yeah, he. Yeah, you don't hear it now. You won't hear it yeah, now. Yeah. But early on, before his presidency, though, he had actually, you know, signed a petition trying to get uh, 9/11 uh, uh, transparency. So the thing is, is that again, it, the the it, the question becomes politicized. If you insinuate by, you know, in, publicly by saying that you have questioned the nature of 9/11, want full transparency. If you question those things, you are a conspiracy theorist, and therefore you are also anti-American because you're insinuating that they weren't terrorists that attacked and that those lives lost were the result of operations of our own. I don't really have the answers. I know that there are aspects of the investigation that were conveniently left out of the 9-11 Commission report, which I own, I believe, two copies of. <laughs> but the thing is is that I've, I've spoken with people who are far more well uh, equipped with with uh, with information and contacts and and, then, and an ability to discern these sorts of things, and one of them uh, is Nick Pope, who is of course best known for his work with the Ministry of Defense uh, as a ufologist. Nick Pope uh, conducted his own investigation of 9/11, and he does not believe that there was in fact a conspiracy or a conspiratorial angle to this. Um, I'm, I'm good friends with Jim Mars, on the other hand, and of course he'll tell you that, th that there are aspects to it, and I've seen a, a, a good argument. From the conspiracy side, I've seen a better argument from the side that it was actually terrorists. And, and where I stand on this is essentially this, that while I think that there was a terrorist attack uh, on on the U.S., and I think that, uh, that, that clearly it was without question a tragedy, and it was one of the worst uh, attacks on American soil in modern times, I also think that the aspects of 9-11. There, there was intelligence that had been gathered and there was information held by our intelligence gathering bodies that I feel uh, could have helped prevent it, but that there was a lack of communication probably between these intelligence uh, organizations. If you want more information on that, uh, a good book to read is uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's book, Secrecy, uh, which talks about the lack of communication between intelligence uh, organizations. And, uh, and I think that that's probably something that led to uh, the attacks happening. There are also some aspects like the collapse of the smaller building, World Trade Center 7, which that I believe was left out of the 9-11 Commission report. Why something like that would be left out, I don't know. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of dirt surrounding those um, those aspects of the mystery. So while I think that there's clearly some dirt, I don't know that I endorse the idea of an inside job, a false flag operation, and the kinds of things that people like Alex Jones say. But clearly there may have been things that could have been done to prevent it. And nonetheless, whatever the end result was, uh, I think that there may have been certain people in politics in government and, and positions of power that utilized 9-11 to their advantage for purposes of economic gain elsewhere in the world, yes. Sure. I think that um, at the very least, it was just allowed to happen. I think you could make a case that allowed they, is a good they knew, yeah, that somebody knew it was going to happen and just turned their back. Guys, what about the uh, the insurance policy that was taken out on the on the, the buildings? You know, like what a, was it a month before the attack? Yeah. Uh, clearly, there had been some intelligence at some point, and somebody knew something about what was going on. But again, I'm not going to say that I think it was necessarily an inside job. It's just that. You know, it, sadly, history has shown that there have been instances where uh, information. Look, you you talked about Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, I, I uh, my grandfather actually is a, is an amateur uh, World War II historian. Of course, having been born, you know, in the the nineteen teens, he uh, he lived through that period, and he actually worked as a dental assistant in a lab, you know, for the United States government um, during the Second World War, and uh, and he knew about that that there actually were radar 
uh, hits that indicated an incoming fleet of planes the morning of the Pearl Harbor attack. Yes, there was information. People, someone did know that there was a fleet of planes coming in. But see, they were expecting a fleet of cargo planes that were going to be coming in uh, from a different direction that were that were U.S. Uh, planes that were bound, I think, uh, to uh, some of the uh, – I can't remember where they were going, but they were going to stop off through Hawaii – uh, the, the details are fuzzy, but bottom line is that they had been expecting to see planes coming from another direction. They saw the planes coming in and assumed wrongly, and what a mistake to make, they assumed wrongly that these planes may have actually been the uh, the cargo planes that they'd been expecting, and they just ignored the fact that, oh, wow, here comes a fleet of planes in early in the morning, and they're going to come bomb us, you know? Sure. So that's often what happens in history shows that in the in these terrible moments of, of, of of tragedy, uh, you know, when an attack like that occurs, usually somebody at some point is going to be the you know the, the the early rider who knows what happens and just barely fails to uh, to warn others of what had happened. Maybe that was the case with nine eleven too, but certainly there were things that somebody knew. Yeah, I'd say I'd say most definitely. Um, one to a subject I wanted to touch uh, that you've written, uh, you're coming out with another book about UFOs, and uh, could you kind of go over? possibly about to give us a little teaser about possibly what you what you have in that book well absolutely yeah it's it's the book's going to be called the ufo singularity and at this point uh, the manuscript's actually done and i'm very excited about that because uh this will be um the only uh book i've released since magic mysticism and the molecule but actually that that of course was my first book so this is uh, number two and it's great to have two under my belt now so uh this book you will be seeing in stores in december and of course um can't say a whole lot because my publishers uh, at New Page would prefer that I wait until after the book comes out to really start promoting it. But but I'll tell you this: that I've um, had I've got a lot of uh, contacts that I that I that I chat with uh, in different uh, you know intellectual circles, and and it's funny because people probably would imagine that I would correspond a lot with you know researchers who are well known and people who study ufo's and people who you know uh, you, people a lot and i do have a lot of friends like nick redfern and uh, i mentioned jim mars and uh you know people that i you know i stay in pretty regular contact with uh, that are in this field but the people who are my most prolific contacts are actually usually people who are in academia uh cell microbiologists or philosophers linguists uh you know people who have uh you know backgrounds in in uh in aviation uh you know, or or people who have, uh, you know, worked in physical or, or natural sciences, things like this. Because as a phenomenologist or as a searcher, uh, searcher of strange things, as opposed to just kind of running in a circle and scratching everybody's back, you know, and just kind of propping up this this idea of of the weirdness around us, I like to compare notes with people who are who are more um, well equipped in specialized fields than I am. And 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 when I've done that, I've I've without question, always come back from these conversations uh, with with a renewed interest in uh, such things as philosophy, physics, you know, languages, these sorts of things. Uh, and the, the the concept I'm trying, trying to drive home with this, this book, The UFO Singularity, uh, dry, draws primarily from an area of interest um, that I think is is incredibly similar in a lot of ways to ufology and and the the two I think are clearly related in some way and yet the ufologists don't see it that way and nor do the people from this particular area I'm talking about that area is transhumanism and uh, transhumanism is kind of built around the idea of eventual creation of smarter than human intelligence that is artificial in nature and also the idea that artificial intelligence at some point may not only 
uh, be created, but that it also may be able to recreate itself, and that if there is a, a form of self-replicating artificial intelligence, or alternatively, maybe a human intelligence that incorporates artificial aspects into itself and becomes kind of modified, a, bi- a bionic or a cyborg or a cybernetic uh, you know, human machine composite, whether it's an artificial intelligence or the latter that I just described, uh, the idea that this new form of enhanced intelligence could replicate itself and that this re- and that this replication process could allow it to improve upon itself at a rapid rate is referred to as technological singularity, a point at which the growth of intelligence or an intelligence explosion, if you will, is growing so quickly that it is imperceptible to human uh, perception as as we have it you know, uh, available to us today. Um, and the, the reason that the reason that that's referred to as a singularity is because of course we, we know that, that the term singularity can uh, be applied to a lot of things, but the singularity or the event horizon of a black hole, of course, is a point beyond which one cannot perceive. And, uh, the science fiction writer Werner Vinge first used that expression to describe this idea of an intelligence or a technology explosion where our advancement of the sciences gets to a point where, we are able to create an intelligence that grows so quickly that humans right now wouldn't be able to perceive that. And he said that that point is a kind of singularity, and he likened it to that event horizon of a black hole. Our our minds can't conceptualize what our future will be like beyond that point. Right. And when we think about the what, the kind of technology that we will incorporate you know, in the world around us and perhaps even incorporate into our species in the future, uh, which is the whole basis of the idea of transhumanism, there are so many, so many parallels in my mind between that mode of thought and the UFO mystery. Obviously, if there were some, you know, as we know from trying to study space travel and looking at the way that humans have tried to use rocket-propelled uh, aircraft that, you know, literally <laughs> expended a tremendous amount of energy just getting up off the ground and launching into space, we see that there are very distinct costly limitations on our own ability to travel through space, and let alone to be able to travel quickly enough to reach a distant star system or, or, or even our nearest planets that might harbor life like us. In our lifetimes alone, we, we don't have aircraft right now that we know of that would be able to travel quickly enough to get us in a human lifetime to one of those planets. And so we talk about colonization of space, and we talk about these missions that would launch people into space, literally where there would be generation after generation after generation of individuals who would be born in space, raised in space, and raised in and taught, basically, uh, to fulfill this mission of colonization or eventual, you know, um, exploration to a, to, a, to a distant planet. It's really pretty ludicrous <laughs> to me because, again, we're trying to utilize this, this Stone Age technology here on Earth, and we're talking about using that to reach distant stars. I think quite, quite the contrary, that if there are other intelligent uh, beings like us out there, and in all likelihood, intelligences out there in the universe would probably, in my estimation, not be very much like us. Again, we're painfully anthropomorphic, and we project our own you know, selves and our, and our ideas and our values and what is normal to us. We project this out into our concept of what alien life would be like. But if there are other intelligent beings out there, and they were physical, flesh and blood, and let's just go ahead and just get really simple and say that they were uh, easy-peasy, squeezy, and, and, and humanoid like us um, – it seems very likely to me that they wouldn't be utilizing, uh, you know, what would be uh, likened to rubbing sticks together to create a fire or crude stone wheels to do that. They would be utilizing highly advanced technology 
maybe the likes of which the transhumanists already envision for our future. And in all likelihood, this concept of a singularity, a technological singularity, would probably be something that had already occurred if an advanced race were attempting to reach us from someplace that far off and utilize a technology that would allow for them to do that. By the same token, if, if in our own future humans do this, uh, it seems to me that transcending the bounds of space and time will no longer be much of an issue for those future humans. As one wise colleague of mine, Dr. Maxim Kammerer, has called them the homo mechanicus of the future. And if indeed there is a UFO phenomenon in our midst that seems at times ghostly, at times partially imperceptible to human nature and to human consciousness and our levels of perceptibility, I've wondered at times if indeed some technology from our future some presence emanating from our future, uh, maybe not necessarily utilizing what we would call time machines, but some technology that nonetheless had harnessed some ability to manipulate and interact with different temporal states of space-time. I wonder if indeed aspects at times of that technology would not be perceptible to us. And I wonder sometimes that if not extraterrestrial in nature, if UFOs might not also constitute something emanating some intelligence from our future. Finally, there could be the potential that there are also suppressed technologies in our midst today and that some of the UFO technology could be that. And if that were the case, that technology would have to be, as many people have said, a few decades ahead of us. Everybody says, you know, kind of anecdotally, oh, the government, what they're using is already just a few decades ahead of what everybody else knows about. Well, probably the most popular transhumanist today is Ray Kurzweil. Oh, yeah. Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, uh, sets a time frame for when he begins what he, uh, when he thinks that uh, what he calls the knee of the curve will begin. And he says, really, by 2029, we should start seeing the beginnings of technological singularity. Well, let's see. what It's 2012 right now, so let's see here, 2022, 2032. Wow, that's about two decades. So if we're a couple of decades away from singularity, and let's just posit for a moment that the government or somebody, the government, that ubiquitous they, are utilizing technology a few decades ahead of us, could there be singularity-type technology going on in our midst right now? I don't know, but that's another uh, consideration. And, and all of these things are quite different, I think, from the way that most people interpret ufology. And I don't understand, for the life of me, why other people don't look at the UFO enigma and say, oh, gee, wow, these things are obviously more advanced than us. And if, if, if our forecasts for the future, according to the futurologists and the transhumanists, are saying that this, this, and this is going to happen, you know, whole brain mapping, nanotechnologies, and these kinds of things, and highly advanced field propulsion, space travel, and the like, uh, that humans will harness effective uh, technological abilities to, uh, to incorporate telepathy and psychic abilities, and also maybe even live forever, how the hell can you look at UFOs and not think that a more advanced intelligence than us wouldn't be doing those things already? And that's what the, the, the idea is with the UFO singularity in essence. And what I also think is that what we are right now as humans, as we progress, eventually if there are other intelligences in our midst in the universe, at some point the UFO singularity by definition would be a point where we get to a level of technological proficiency that we are now on par with these other intelligences. And even if there are intelligences, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, whatever, that are in our midst but that we're not entirely aware of them yet, once we reach that level of technological proficiency, we will become aware of them. And we may even begin to share ideas or work with the network. We may merge together as one singular intelligence. We may negate one another if hostilities erupt between such intelligences and our own and our own future selves. Who, who knows what, where this could go, but I think that at some point, if there's intelligent life like us in the universe, uh, we will inevitably 
come into a, a some of some variety of confrontation with that. It may not be a hostile confrontation, but that is certainly a singular point like Venge described, and I call that the UFO singularity. And beyond that, I can't conceptualize really what our future is going to be, but I think it's going to happen. Well, Micah, uh, do you think the, that there is a negative side? Since you mentioned transhumanism, do you think that there's a negative side to transhumanism? I certainly think that there is. Uh, talking with Ben Gertzel, Ph.D., on the Grayling Report podcast. Um, I heard that interview, yeah. Yeah, Ben is one of the foremost experts on artificial intelligence that there is today. And and it's funny because Ben's a dude, you know. He's just a he's just a real laid back cool guy. Got long hair, you know, and likes to drink beer. And he he talks about how his view of singularity isn't quite as rosy, if we want to use that terminology, uh, as Kurzweil's. And and my brother Caleb, uh, who uh, also is very interested, he he was the probably one of the very first people to introduce me to the ideas of transhumanism and, and you know Kurzweil's singularity. My brother Caleb uh, and I were talking about this uh, over the weekend, and he said, well, but you got to understand that for Kurzweil, of course he's going to be an overt optimist because it's a selling point for him. And if he's trying to sell books and he's trying to build an industry on this futurism, of course he's going to be overtly optimistic about it. Whereas you see someone like Ben Gertzel, who uh, I noticed that Gertzel will almost never commit belief to anything, but he will always weigh Options and he does that <laughs> during. If, if people haven't heard that interview on the Grayling Report, I, I recommend that they go to the website and just do a search for Ben Gertzel, G O E R T Z E L. And uh, if you look up Gertzel and uh, that interview, the the kinds of things that he I think I spelled that right. I hope I did, but <laughs> it's kind of a funny name. Um, if if you listen to the interview, uh, I ask him a lot of questions and he'll talk about how he maybe has a, an optimistic viewpoint about singularity, but that there are definitely dangerous potentials. And he outlines a few of those. And one of the things that he said was, you know, in the event that we have artificial intelligence in our future that is created by us, and it is, you know, smarter than us or or capable of self-replication and therefore replicates itself and improves itself and becomes much smarter than us in a short amount of time, then, you know, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with a a kind of intelligence that may find no use for humans at some point. That's yeah, like the Terminator movies. But I think that also in those films, again, we it's funny because whether it be, uh, you know, Contact was, a, uh, was an exception, but then again, that was also written by Carl Sagan. Um, but when we see, like, uh, coming out this Friday, Prometheus, I can't wait to see this film. Um, most of our, the, uh, our, our, our theatrical interpretations of Alien Contact are a little less than savory. Alien, Predator, uh, Prometheus, um, uh, what was it, uh, Battle Los Angeles, you know, uh, uh, even Mars Attacks, as ridiculous as that film was. I mean, this is a motif in our science fiction, that aliens come to Earth and they want to harness our resources and they want to destroy Earth. <laughs> I'm sorry, but having utilized such advanced technology and having probably mastered, you know, if there is indeed zero point and free energy and these kinds of things, it's a fairly ludicrous idea that a highly advanced intelligent race would come to Earth seeking resources. Uh, nonetheless, it sells tickets, and it's a great motif for sci-fi and horror, and therefore this is what generally our concept of alien contact has become. Artificial intelligent life, robotic life forms you know, that, that will be created in the future. Films have done a pretty good job conditioning us to how that's going to turn out just as well. Is that potential existent? Yes. Should that be taken seriously? Absolutely. Is it likely? I don't know how likely it is. Is it possible that artificial intelligence will not be 
uh, dangerous to humankind and trying to exterminate us, surely it's possible, and it may even be more likely that it, that we will maintain a benign and benevolent uh, interrelationship with intelligence that we create. But there's certainly a potential for a dark side, like you'd said. Yeah, we we tend to ascribe our own actions and our own own human nature to to other things. I mean, I think that's a natural thing that humans do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we we project an anthropocentric um, viewpoint, you know. And and what else should we do? You know, if you study what's called embodied cognition, uh, the very the very mode of thought that is that is uh, innate to humans uh, may largely stem from our predisposition biologically and 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 physically as humanoids. Think about this: we have hands, we have stereoscopic vision through eyes that are situated on a head atop of a torso at the base of which there are genitalia okay <laughs> let's just put it all out there we're consumers we eat and we crap that stuff out <laughs> you know and i put it so bluntly because again we i think forget sometimes to look at ourselves and go wow this is how we function and our philosophical understanding of nature around us is filtered just like the water we drink or the food that we eat or the air that we breathe, it's filtered through this physical being that we are. And when we discuss the philosophical concept of embodied cognition, what we're talking about is the idea that there are aspects of the way that we perceive nature and reality and space-time that are innate to a three-dimensional humanoid form like we are. And that, yes, there are probably limitations that are drawn from that. Uh, and, and I think that escaping some of those limitations, the first step would be to recognize, wow, we're human, and everything that we perceive, we perceive through this this pair of goggles, you know, that filters everything in an anthropocentric, a humanistic kind of way. And again, I think that we assume that artificial intelligence would behave according to the laws and the jurisdictions of human thought, good or bad, evil, you know, and, and, and tasty and, and, and not tasty and happy and not happy, you know, whatever. Um, in all likelihood, a consciousness that emerges from a machine without arms or legs or hair or a nose or a tongue or ears, that consciousness may perceive uh, reality and life and other aspects that are very near and dear to our existence very differently from how you or I would. Um, these are things that people don't stop and, and take into consideration very often. And by the same token, the same would apply to extraterrestrial life. If there's a squid-based life form on another planet that's highly intelligent, uh, and some of the cephalopods here on Earth are actually remarkably intelligent, despite the fact that we serve them on our buffets at Chinese restaurants and the like. If an inte intelligent squid life form existed on another planet and it wasn't a humanoid, that creature may uh, perceive space-time and reality very differently from the way that you or I would. Yeah, and it's entirely possible. Well, Michael, we are just about out of time, but uh, Luke, do you want to add anything to all this? Uh, I just got back from a nap in the back. What did you guys say? Uh <laughs> Can, Wake give up! Me, <laughs> give me a little summary. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. It, everything was really interesting. Uh, I think we share a lot of the same viewpoints on things. You're definitely a lot more articulate than me. <laughs> oh, I get that sometimes. It's okay. Yeah, I I think that we've just kind of barely scratched the surface on a lot of these issues and a lot of these things that uh, that that you're that you're talking about. And a lot of these same things, you know, I've really found to really, uh, really love the the Grayling Report, and uh, you just, you know, want to tell you guys that you guys are are, are really good. 
Thank you very much. And uh, and Luke and Adam, I, I have to say, it, it's really been great being on the program with you. Keep up the good work, because as we touched on earlier, I think that alternative media, uh, especially the, the smaller outlets like this, you know, the, the podcasts, the mysterious universes and the Grayling reports and the conspiranormals of this world, these are the mediums through which I think people are going to get a little less of the bullshit, well, you know, that stuff that everybody deals with out there in, the, in their daily lives. And uh, even though I probably could have said that word, I didn't want to drop a bomb on you and really the hurt you. The bull hockey. The bull hockey, yeah. So, you know, but <laughs> I do that on my own program from time to time. But then again, I don't think that the S word is necessarily considered a bad word by today's jurisdiction. So yeah, I got, I've kind of so, noticed that. Yeah. It, boy, the times there are changing, aren't they? But either way, again, I think that, you know, you, you weed out a lot of the crap. Uh, when you get down to the to the level of the of the innate honesty uh, that is uh, you know what we call the podcasting medium, I'm so thankful for it. I, I engage in in a good bit of it every week, and of course, it's always my pleasure not only to do that on my own program, but you know to, to uh, bring my insights, whatever they may be worth, you know, to programs like yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on. Hey, I want to thank you for coming on uh, my little show, as it is right now, uh, with only like five episodes up. So <laughs> wait, till, wait till you got 50, you know, and uh, 500 and it won't be a small program anymore after that. Right. Right. But, um, tell people where they can contact you, um, where they can hear your podcast. Absolutely. Yes. You can, you can listen to that cosmic love cast. That is the Graylian report by visiting triple W dot Graylian report. That's G R and the word alien Graylian report.com. Check it out. And you can also email me info at Graylian report.com. And of course, every week we put up that fantastic well, I already called it a cosmic love cast, you know, and if you if you don't know what the cosmic – a lot of people don't get that cosmic love thing, but to hell with them. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a running theme on our program, uh, and, and I don't necessarily mean it in a new age sense. I mean it in the sense that, you know, let's all be good to one another, and let's try and reach a, 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 a clearer mode of thinking through cooperation – uh, I think that that's what you guys are trying to do and what everyone tries to do when they're yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, you know, and uh, whatever you choose to call it, I call it cosmic love, uh, but you know, call it what you what call it hell call it rock and roll if you want to. I don't care. That one works just about as good, but you'll hear a lot of that on the Grayling Report. And I invite if you like Conspiranormal, you might like Grayling Report almost as much. I believe you will. And uh to stay on the line, Micah, we're going to do a couple things here. But nope. uh Luke and I are going to come back. And uh, we're going to talk about our little trip that we took uh, two weeks ago. So stay put. We're going to take a little break. This man's name is John Austin Frazier. He lived in Chicago, Illinois. He now resides at the State Mental Hospital. We are saddened to tell you that this tragic condition was brought on when Mr. Frazier attended the world premiere of our triple nightmare of horror program, Orgy of the Living Dead. Since this tragic event, the producers of the program have secured an insurance policy, ensuring the sanity of each and every patron. The policy states that in the event you lose your mind as a result of viewing this explosion of terror, you will be provided with free internment in an asylum for the rest of your natural life. Poor John. It's not surprising, though, after all, murder, mutilation, blood-sucking vampires, living dead maniacs, slashing, rending, devouring the living. It's enough to drive anyone mad. Be sure you're insured before you dare to see Revenge of the Living Dead, Curse of the Living Dead, and Fangs of the Living Dead. <laughs> that's, that's not bad. Let's do that. That's okay, well, welcome back to Conspiranormal, and we're back. And uh, Luke and I want to talk about a place that we went to uh, a couple weeks ago. The Georgia Guidestones. Yes, the Georgia Guidestones. Um, 
I'd been before. Uh, Luke had never had been. But I uh, just want to kind of get your you know thoughts on it, what you think it is, and uh, what you think it's all about. From what I gather, uh, it's just some intellectuals who you know, find astronomy interesting and stuff like that. Uh, I believe you said Rosicrucians. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, the reason I said that was because it was built by someone named, um, well, the person that put up the money to build it, rather, was named R.C. Christian. So I kind of look at that as being, well, the R.C. especially as being Rosicrucians, which were a secret society. Right. Um, I think it was primarily, since it was built in 1980, which was pretty much in the depths of the Cold War. There was a lot of talk about nuclear war at the time. And where it is, is pretty remote. And if you think about it, someone that would have to go there to, to, see, to see it after, say, like an apocalypse, that it would be to kind of restart civilization in a way. Right, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Um, it could be there for multiple reasons you know yeah i look <laughs> at it as like a rosetta stone right yeah and there's no telling what's in that time capsule there's ju- there's nothing on the internet that tells you there's no clues as to what's in that time capsule right it doesn't even have a date on it right and there's an interesting picture which i'll put up on the facebook page and i'll possibly on the blog of luke pointing at a uh at one of the commandments so what you were pointing at uh avoid petty laws Void petty laws and useless officials. Yes. Yeah, it's a pretty funny picture. And if anyone has noticed our picture on Conspiranormal Now is Luke looking through one of the astronomical alignment holes. Right. On the the one who, who's uh, pointing to whatever it's called scientifically where the sun is at the uh, on the horizon or something like that. Yeah, I believe so. And one of our old guests, uh, Dr. Future, our first guest, he's done some studies into uh, the Georgia Guidestones, and he seems to think that um, the astronomical holes are actually, and the reason that there's no date on the actual little stone on the ground that says when when it should be opened for the time capsule, he believes that actually that that it's going to align at a certain point, and it's going to align on that stone, and that's going to be the day that they opened it up. Oh, wow. So I I don't know, you know, if that's true. I mean, who really knows? It's such a it's such an odd thing. And we, we drove up Interstate 85 from Atlanta, and you're in the middle of nowhere. Alberta, then, Georgia. Yeah, Elberton. Elberton. And, then, and then, then, then just all of a sudden, here's the guide stands coming right at you. Um, I, I think that would be a, a little bit too meticulous for 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 that to be realistic. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, anything is. Um, we don't know. We really don't even know who really built it or who really even was was behind it. I mean, right. there's some suspicion. A lot of people have other suspicions of who it was. But uh, the the main point, I, I think a lot of people, especially in the conspiracy theory realm, uh, get upset about it is because of the first commandment on it says, keep the earth at, what is it, 500 million? Uh, f- yes, 500 million, yeah. So they right. think that it's like something that, you know, um, in my theory that if it's after a nuclear war or some kind of apocalypse that um, actually the human race has already been decimated. So it's just a it's just a, a guidance of saying, you know, keep the earth at 
you know, the human population is 500 million. Right, and uh, I was watching a little mini documentary on it, and that's, you know, as we all know, there's way too much room in the world for just 500 million people. There's a lot of space. Right. The 500 million people would have been the population of the world, I'd say, probably like sometime in the middle of the 18th century or right. something like that. So <laughs> When the Azagoths were still around. Yeah, so there's not there's not much uh, that I think is really t- to be concerned about there, uh, but it has kind of become like this associated with the New World Order and all this kind of thing, and that stone had actually been uh, vandalized by people, and you could actually see where it had been vandalized. Yeah, right. So I don't really, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think people should go see it and just draw your own conclusions. Uh, so go ahead and give everyone like a preface of what it is. Uh, explain of what the Georgia Guidestones are. Right. Yeah. Just uh, uh, well, a summary. You know of what what exactly it is. Well, I mean, there there's these stones that are sitting up, and they have different languages on them. Uh, of course, one is in English. Um, one is in, I believe, Russian. Swahili's one of them, Spanish, Chinese. Uh, yeah, I think Chinese is another. Hebrew is another. At the top, there's uh, however you say it, cuneiform or. Yeah, and at the top it says, "Let these be, um, let these stones be a guide to a new age of knowledge." And actually, that is not written in English. That's uh, a, a capstone at the top that uh, has it in hieroglyphics, cuneiform, and. Um, what is it? Uh, Sanskrit, I believe, and and Greek, ancient Greek. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's all these uh, different things with you know ancient cultures as well. So this is another thing that I believe in possibly the Rosicrucians were possibly behind it because of course you know they're they're always into like preserving ancient knowledge and and such like that. Right. So. I mean, you know, it's very interesting. You know, we didn't stay there too long. We did hear somebody as we got out the door of the car um, talking about crop circles. We thought that was pretty <laughs> funny. So, you know, just a very interesting thing. Is there anything that you want to add about it, Luke? Uh, not really. I mean, it's definitely a place to stop. If you're in the south, check it out. If you're going through, I mean, it's it's interesting. And anything, too, just let me ask. You Luke, um, is there anything that um, so far, uh, the guests that we've had that you know has has really been interesting to you that you've gotten a lot out of? Like what yours, in your opinion? Hmm. Uh, I guess from each guest, just little things here and there uh, that I didn't know about. You know, um, most of your guests definitely run in some uh, some deep circles. You know, and have talked with some uh, some really kind of underground people. Yeah, and we are going to have a lot more guests, and they're going to be of different ideas. And I think you just heard Mike. We just heard Micah Hanks. You know, he's a very deep thinker. Um, he is a very much a Renaissance man on all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And you know, Doctor Future and Tom Bionic also were. You know. And I, I think, too, you know, uh, Prime was a very interesting guest because he gave, you know, he's kind of an every man, and uh, he just gave, like, a personal account of his experiences. Right. He's kind of on the other end of the spectrum, too. Yeah, uh, in many ways. 
And that's that's what I want. You know, that's my goal for the show is people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. And I thought, too, um, last time with Tom Bionic uh, was one of our better shows because there was a good give and take between you and he. And that's the kind of thing that I really want to want to see right. more of, you know. Not, not you know, lambasting somebody's views or anything like that. Just more of a, you know, if you can kind of challenge each other and challenge each other to think. <laughs> but uh, just a couple of things, and we're going to get out of here. Uh, you know, there is a Facebook page, Conspiranormal, with an I in the middle. Uh, check out the cool picture of Luke looking through one of the holes of the uh, Georgia Godstones. And, uh... There's just uh, there is a blog. I haven't been really keeping up with that more with the Facebook page, but uh, you will see hopefully more things there. And you can download us at conspiranormal.podomatic.com. And if there's anything you want to add, Luke, we're gonna get out of here. Who's All right. <laughs> so I don't even know what that was, but uh, I want to thank everybody for uh, coming in and listening to another episode of Conspiranormal. Girlfriend's a whore.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.